My name's Cathy Greenfield. I'm one of the uh, directors of the Centre for Communication, Politics and Culture. Um, I'll start just by acknowledging the Wurundjeri, the traditional owners of the land. Uh, and then I should tell you that uh, the Centre uh, is the home of interdisciplinary uh, scholarship in the School of Media and Communications. Um, and it works, we, we have work that uh, goes across a, a quite a broad array of areas ex and I guess the key focus is that they all examine the interplay of communication and politics and culture in um, contexts that range from you know the global and the national and the local down to the organisational. It's a, it's a great pleasure to welcome everyone um, this afternoon. Uh, I have a friend who always says we were a small group but we were perfectly formed and I'm sure we will find yeah. that that's the case this afternoon. And it's a real pleasure and an honour uh, to welcome Professor Jan Survey and Dr Pat Malakau. Um, I'll leave them to do the explication and discussion of um, you know, what is the hard work of communication for social change uh, and sustainable development. But it strikes me that their talk to us this afternoon could not come at a more apt time. Um, and what I'm thinking about is fairly obvious, I guess. Um, in the last few few weeks, we've had um, Obama observing uh, at the UN uh, Climate uh, Change Summit that however much terrorism might be taking up everyone's attention and uh, immediate efforts, global warming uh, poses us all a far greater and more significant challenge. And it's becoming increasingly clear that the Ebola epidemic that's uh, taking lives and endangering whole populations in Africa is already a huge public health problem and is threatening to escalate without necessary international assistance. And we probably have our views on whether that international assistance is forthcoming or not from Australia. Those are, as I understand it, um, precisely the kind of new and highly complex challenges, to use Professor Survey's words, which demand communication that knows what it's doing, how to do it well, and for what purpose. Um, before I ask them to take the floor, uh, just a little bit of information um, for those of you in the audience. Professor Survey is Chair Professor and Head of the Department of Media and Communication at the City University in Hong Kong, and he's also UNESCO Chair in Communication for Sustainable Social Change at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Uh, Jan also holds positions in China and Belgium. I hope I'm getting your very large CV <laughs> right. Um, his many publications and his advisory work around the world deals with international and development communication, with intercultural communication, participatory social change, human rights and conflict management. His latest books are Sustainability, Participation and Culture in Communication Theory and Praxis and an edited volume in Sustainable Development and Green Communication, African and Asian Perspectives. Dr Pat Maliko uh, is a scholar at Tamasat University in Bangkok and also a senior fellow at Amherst in the, is the Centre for Communication for Sustainable Social Change. Like Jan, her considerable and very interesting range of scholarship and consultancy work is in Communication for Social Change with a special focus on public health, as indicated by the title of her latest book, Sex in the Village, Culture, Religion and HIV-AIDS in Thailand, 
which I wish I had had a while ago when I was supervising a postgraduate doing work in a not unrelated area. Um, just before I ask Jan and Pat to take the floor, I should mention that the Centre is also hosting uh, another event following straight after this one. Um, we'll have your talk and some question time. Uh, and that's a book launch by Dr Tony Jacques, um, who's an adjunct uh, a, a researcher in the school and a member of the centre. Tony's book's on issue and crisis management, uh, so that should be a good segue for anyone um, who would like to join us there. Um, so I'm not trying to take the attention away from our immediate um, pleasure of listening to you, but I thought I'd just give a heads up. But over to you now. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure and an honour to be here. I'll uh, try and we try to uh, make it entertaining and uh, interesting, I hope. Uh, given the size of the audience, we could try to uh, start a bit of a discussion or a dialogue uh, gradually, so don't feel uh, uh, too uh, taken aback. Uh, if you have questions, if you want to interrupt, uh, please feel free to do so. Um, I um, wanted to start with, and uh, you already made that uh, connection, uh, the issue of global warming. And uh, for those of you who still read newspapers, uh, <laughs> today's uh, editorial in The Age, government drops the ball on global climate, or clo uh, uh, on climate change, sorry. And uh, further down in the comments, you'll s you can read, Australia under the Abbott government has become an international joke on matters related to climate change. Uh, I'll leave that way of interpreting uh, today's... Uh, Australian politics to the age, but I can't say I don't, uh, that I disagree with uh, such a, a comment or a statement. Uh, having lived in this country for about five years in the past, in Brisbane that was, uh, I was always uh, appalled to see the lack, the disinterest in uh, environmental issues uh, in a country which can easily uh, make use in a in a very profitable and uh, 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 viable way uh, of uh, some energies which uh, uh, are readily available. And nevertheless, uh, I think it now is becoming a bit of a trend to promote solar energy, but in those days it was still taken away from any kind of uh, policy or uh, public agenda. Okay, so... I uh, will also start uh, our presentation uh, with uh, a reference to climate change, uh, not in uh, this country, but in Thailand. Uh, some of you may recall that 2011 was uh, one of those uh, times that uh, Thailand, for uh, a good number of months, uh, was flooded, and that was not uh, isolated to certain villages or uh, uh, parts of the country, but uh, almost, uh, I don't recall the precise uh, measurement uh, used, one-third to, to half of the country was uh, flooded at one point in time. And uh, flooding uh, meant that, uh, as you can see in these pictures, uh, people were no longer uh, at liberty to do their usual uh, stuff, uh, couldn't uh, walk out, couldn't uh, do their job, couldn't uh, move from one place to another. Now, the latest uh, calculations uh, 
uh, about the flooding risk in the world as a result of climate change were just recently uh, investigated in a report and then reported by the New York Times. I have clipped the graph the, the New York Times uh, reproduced about a week ago. And here you'll see that for this part of the world, uh, Vietnam, Thailand, Bangladesh, uh, up to a level also to Japan, are featuring prominently as the countries most at risk uh, in the coming future. To counterbalance that, you, uh, there is also a part of Europe. Uh, if we would have included uh, America, there is less of a danger at that site, uh, given the vastness and the dimensions and the density of, of what is at stake with regard to flooding risk. But uh, the Netherlands uh, is mentioned here as a country also at risk. The difference, of course, being that the Netherlands has a bit of a history uh, in preventing flooding, and after all, they are called low countries for a reason. They, they are living below the sea level, uh, as long as uh, I can remember. Uh, they have, of course, uh, policy-wise uh, invested uh, uh, accordingly, and therefore, although they have a risk, the, the chances that they will become uh, as flooded as Thailand was and may become again uh, in some time to come or uh, uh, rather limited. Now, is that then uh, fair to say that flooding as part of climate change is just a natural phenomenon, I, which I think is the stand taken by the Abbott uh, government. Uh, it comes and goes. Uh, uh, climate, yeah. Uh, one day cold, the other day hot. Uh, they also continue to say in, in the U.S., uh, until some years ago uh, when we were living there in the northern corner of the country, the New England, uh, there were still a lot of deniers around. But uh, since they have now, in a consecutive way, suffered a couple of harsh winters, uh, that uh, kind of comment is uh, disappearing from the uh, Massachusetts uh, regional uh, media agendas. So is it fair to say that Australia is one of the latest uh, uh, bastions of uh, climate deniers. Uh, uh, I leave that conclusion up to you. But uh, what I wanted to make clear is that although this may look like a natural uh, disaster and uh, caused by natural phenomena, this is basically man-made. Uh, we as human beings have a lot to do with this, not only in the way we consume and the way we pollute and, uh, and make use of our uh, environment, but also in the way our politicians or policymakers or uh, those involved in uh, uh, construction and reconstruction uh, activities can prevent this from happening. And now in the context of Thailand, 2011 I said, but it has happened at a smaller scale again over the summer, uh, in uh, July, August, uh, there were reports uh, that parts of the country uh, were again uh, flooded and uh, the uh, moving around of people was uh, becoming problematic. The, in the case of Thailand, in the late 80s, that's according to uh, media reports, uh, they commissioned a Dutch firm, consultancy firm, to advise them on the risk of uh, flooding 
for the future, and that Dutch firm came up with a, a decent, uh, well-researched uh, uh, report uh, advising them to build uh, uh, dams and, and construct uh, uh, tunnels, and, and uh, you, you have it. Uh, I'm not a specialist in, in, in these uh, kind of things, but that report was acknowledged by the parliament. There was money allocated to start implementing following up on the recommendations, but unfortunately, in the Thai context, most of that money disappeared in the pockets of. So while everybody realizes that it's man-made and that you can also prevent it if you uh, have the right policies and the right uh, 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 politicians uh, in place, uh, we are nevertheless, and people... Uh, living in those contexts are nevertheless suffering as a result. And the closer we come to that final date or uh, period that it all happens, then the media will be full and uh, covering all this in much detail. But uh, it's in fact now or even the past that we should have started preparing for this. And that's precisely what communication could uh, bring to the table, preparing for uh, those things. So. In, in a way, what I wanted to say from the outset is that communication and the profession of communication in the sense uh, I would define it is not an, uh, a, a science which you can do in your uh, ivory towers or uh, in a neutral capacity. Uh, communication has to be engaged. Every academic has to be engaged, but we in the field of communication should take that uh, to heart and, and do it in the proper way. You may say, but there are uh, disciplines and fields and sectors within the broader area of communication. They, they don't really need that kind of emphasis because uh, they do it in a more mathematical or in a more uh, uh, natural science kind of uh, way. I can accept that up to a point, but we in the field of communication for social change cannot use that as an excuse to pretend to be objective and to be neutral in what we are trying to uh, uh, do as part of our research, as part of our uh, policy recommendations, as part of being invited to be uh, consulting and, and advising uh, uh, groups in society, be it uh, governments, be it uh, uh, UN agencies, or be it being at communities with uh, which we try to establish rapport and, 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 and work. So that's, I would say, is my opening statement. Uh, don't get me uh, to say that uh, we have to uh, work it out uh, and uh, become the objective uh, uh, journalists or reporters of what uh, the reality is about. I think we need to take a stand. Uh, we need to do that also as academics. Okay, now... What is the gist of uh, uh, what we try to do today? Uh, it's, uh, uh, this is the outline, and I have co-authored a, a chapter for a book which is <coughs> uh, currently in production in China. It, what I will share with you, or what we will share with you, is, is the English version of that uh, chapter, of course, uh, which is a bit of a summary of what I have been doing throughout my my career, or what we have been doing. And uh, uh, so there are a couple of things which are common knowledge by now, so I just want to touch upon those. And if you have 
additional questions than uh, raised them during the question and answer time. Uh, I don't intend to occupy uh, all the time and uh, definitely not try, I will try not to bore you. Uh, but uh, uh, in order to say something about the future, we will have to look back and, 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 and assess what has been the past. That's our first uh, attempt. The second is uh, making it more concrete by looking at the Thai case or Thailand as a, as a case. But at the same time, we would also like to add some new perspectives to that case. And uh, Pachini will uh, address Thailand from the perspective of what is the role, what can be the contribution of a Buddhist philosophy, as of a Buddhist perspective on sustainable social change. Mapping the future and directions for future research will be the logical outcome of all of that, uh, and if we have time we can elaborate, otherwise uh, we'll just uh, uh, briefly mention those. In, in my own work, and, and uh, this is properly documented also in other books and, and reports, you can uh, uh, analyze the field of communication and social change from either the social change component or from the perspective of uh, communication. That's what uh, I started off doing as a PhD student, uh, trying to uh, understand uh, what was available and then in bits and pieces add my own thinking and, and critiques. So the development paradigms or well-known, everybody knows about modernization, about dependency, which was a critique on modernization, and then everything since the late 70s, 80s, uh, which was added, uh, has been given different titles, alternative communication uh, de uh, development, uh, basic needs development, uh, yeah, human development, uh, you name it. In my own work, I um, uh, refer to multiplicity because there are a couple of elements which I have uh, highlighted uh, in that more traditional assessment of uh, development paradigms which come from a more communication and cultural perspective. Uh, at the communication paradigm level, uh, of course I know that in an audience of communication scholars uh, you have different entry points and different ways of uh, uh, structuring our field. But uh, in the, the vastness of different approaches, when we are uh, discussing this with the component of social change, uh, we basically have to come to the realization that there is not much communication has contributed to this kind of discussion, except in very crude uh, general terms. And hence, if we analyze it at the same level as we just did for development paradigms, there are basically two perspectives in communication. That's a top-down perspective, which is called often the diffusion of innovations, or a bottom-up perspective, which is often also referred to as participatory communication. Over the years, we have uh, assessed those, and we have uh, tried to identify differences and sub-disciplinary perspectives. All that is fair and definitely worth uh, scrutinizing and analyzing, but in general, when you break it down to the core, then you still are stuck with these two perspectives. And uh, maybe in the theoretical discussions, we have moved away from these crudenesses and, and uh, become much more uh, uh, 
fine-tuned in our assessments, but uh, when you uh, then go to the field, go to the reality, you still find many of these mythological components uh, readily available, sometimes in the way people formulate their uh, activities and, and what they are doing, sometimes in the written reports or what you see in the field. So, uh, and why do I say so? Because we have good scientific evidence to make that point. There is, uh, in the cause of, uh, of this uh, past century or past half century, since the 50s, when communication became recognized as, a, as, a, as an up-and-coming field, that's not a coincidence, that's because, especially in the Western world, uh, the State Department and whatever it represented in those days needed uh, not so much communication for social change in the more structural, sociological uh, meaning, but in the psychological meaning. How can you affect the thinking and the belief systems of other cultures and, 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 and uh, people? And that was the driving force for much of the original research in, in, in communication. And uh, uh, social psychology, uh, the empathy studies, they are all driven by that kind of urge or is still classified by the CIA, uh, not uh, properly uh, available if you want to do research on this. So uh, research priorities, they, they have done what one can call meta uh, studies on what uh, was the dominant trend in certain periods, uh, analyze content analysis, uh, any of these uh, uh, mechanisms. Uh, the, the body of knowledge uh, during a certain period and that in a systematic way uh, not only quantitative but also qualitative and for our field communication social change but in a broader sense for the field of communication I would say uh, we have done that in a systematic way as I said and we can conclude with some strong evidence that there was a time that participatory communication became at once the flavor of the day and uh, therefore got also properly researched and, and, uh, and analyzed, but that was not now, that was not in the early days, that was somewhere between 85 and 95 with some spillover to the uh, previous and the past periods. That was a time that some of you, uh, I guess, were studying these phenomena and uh, were familiar with the discussions. Uh, if you go a bit earlier in the race, like I uh, come from the 70s and beginning uh, 80s, then of course you've also been exposed to the whole discussion about the new international information order, the UNESCO debates, etc., which was in a way in line with the dependency paradigm. But we have fundamentally moved out of that period uh, by today's standards Although, and that's the interesting point to make about today, since the end of the 90s, the emergence of the internet, the emergence of social networks, uh, Twitter and others, we are back again to what you can call a diffusionist technology, technologically deterministic kind of perspective on communication. And that has a lot to do with modernization, that has a lot to do with the diffusion of innovations, once again. Uh, if you uh, want to dig into the literature, uh, we have the, uh, the references and the documentation available for those interested. But So we are currently again reinventing the wheel. 
And uh, uh, the question is why? Isn't there anybody who does the historical analysis, who does his reading? Aren't there any students exposed to that uh, old stuff in order to prevent them from doing it uh, or repeating themselves? It's an open question, but of course it has a lot to do with power. And uh, who, who has been uh, uh, analyzing social processes knows that power and culture are the two components which often are neglected in the traditional scientific perspectives, but should be taken into account. And that's precisely what I think multiplicity and the new approaches to communication for social change are about. They like to, or they, they emphasize concepts like power, concepts like culture. They, they emphasize the multidimensional uh, aspects of uh, change. It's not only, as they used to say in the old days, uh, we as the US or the West, we will transplant our uh, concept of modernity and uh, make them modern thanks to new technologies and, and uh, aid packages. And that's the end to it. Uh, Okay, we can go into a political discussion here, but let's keep that for uh, later. Now, uh, to briefly uh, highlight this a bit further, uh, in my own research and, uh, and, and the research I did with uh, my PhD students, we have been surveying the field, we have been identifying different approaches, we have been analyzing different case studies uh, or gone through the trouble of doing the case studies ourselves. And we basically summarize the field by referring to 14 approaches. Some of these approaches are theoretical. Some of it are, them are just uh, ways UN agencies or uh, main players in the field identify themselves. Uh, so, for instance, IEC is a concept uh, developed by WHO. Uh, CAP, uh, Knowledge, Attitude and Practices, was... Uh, developed by UNFPA, the Family Planning uh, Agency. Uh, DSC, up to a point, uh, comes out of the jargon and the discussions at FAO levels. So you'll see that there was a variety of different terminologies, but you can also identify different approaches within each uh, broader uh, uh, definition. Now, I highlighted some in red because I still think that they are uh, very representative for today's uh, uh, discussion and, uh, and what's going on. Uh, and maybe by now you've also realized that there is something like a normative perspective here. At the top, I've classified the oldest and the more traditional approaches, top-down approaches. At the bottom, you'll find more participatory uh, bottom-up approaches. But there is that kind of variety still available today. And if you look into, into the field, if you ask the players, people who work in the field, some of them will admit, others they will just say, this is rubbish, uh, we do what we do, and we do it good because we know that our reports indicate that there is progress or there is impact. And then, of course, uh, uh, you can no longer have a serious discussion because that's the end to uh, the dialogue. But more and more people admit that there is something wrong with the traditional ways of assessing and, and impact assessment. Uh, more and more people also realize that there is no one way of doing these things. You need to start with the context in which you 
or uh, being invited or uh, which you have selected as your uh, field uh, uh, area and then gradually determine the parameters, the, the, the factors, the elements, the variables which are important to look at. And that, of course, is a matter of methodology, but also a matter of uh, engagement and, uh, and, and commitment to uh, particular things. Yeah. Have, you, have you found that often some of them are um, at play through the within an organization? Yeah. Yes, uh, many organizations these days, they shop around and they uh, select uh, whatever is fashionable, whatever is trendy, or whoever is in charge. Right. Right. And, and, and if you ask the professionals, and there is a famous quote which I think we have in our chapter uh, by Adam Rogers, that's not the son of, uh, but uh, just somebody who is also having that family name. He works for, uh, in those days, uh, New York-based uh, UN agency, Capital Development Fund. Now he is with uh, the UN Development Agency in Geneva. Uh, which is one of the more theoretical uh, agencies uh, following these things. Uh, he uses the term participatory diffusion to uh, identify what uh, many agencies are doing. And in a more theoretical uh, argument, I've called that uh, semantic confusion. Uh, this is, uh, you cannot compare uh, uh, the diffusion theory and the participatory communication theory and collapse them together to one term because they start from different epistemological and ontological uh, premises. And so as a result we uh, have agreed to disagree. We can uh, engage and we can uh, laugh and be cynical about all of this but that's what the reality in the field often tends to be. Okay, so in an another way of categorizing it is this uh, following this pattern by identifying what the goal, the objective of communication are about. So man, much of what communication is about is interpersonal communication. It's trying to change the attitudes and the behavior of uh, people and communities. That's the first uh, part of uh, any kind of decent communication introduction. Public relations, journalism, they are all uh, dealing partly or uh, fundamentally with uh, behavioral change communication. Mass communication comes into the picture if you add the mass media and the, both the traditional ones, the broadcasting, uh, newspaper industry, but also the new ones. Uh, social media are in, in that sense not different from uh, old traditional forms of disseminating, distributing communication products. Uh, advocacy communication is, an, is a more specific uh, way for the field because we try to convince all groups of society that there should be so done something about certain cases, certain causes. And that can be working at uh, the level of person-to-person -person communication if you try to convince a politician that uh, he or she needs to change uh, the law or whatever, then that's more one-to-one -one policy based, but it can also be mobilizing for social change uh, during uh, uh, demonstrations, during uh, uh, social uh, movements, etc. That's also linked to advocacy. Participatory communication community mobilization goes a bit further. It's not only awareness building, it's not only uh, informing people, it's also trying to go beyond uh, uh, behavioral, uh, mental change. It's actually making things happen and uh, 
and that preferably on a sustainable uh, basis, on a long term, on a uh, longer than next week uh, basis. The last one is then, in my opinion, the more difficult one to accomplish and also the, the more uh, genuine sustainable change objective. Now, I don't want to quantify all of that, but uh, I've tried that with a couple of colleagues and uh, so-called experts in the field, and after some discussion we agreed that most of what communication teaching is about, it's concentrated on one and two. Most of the bulk of what communication studies are about is related to one and two. Right? While if we really want to address it from the perspective of sustainable social change, we have to get to the fifth, and we often don't get there. Marketing communication, one and two. Journalism, most often one and two. And so that brings me to the additional argument that it's all good and well uh, for uh, companies to make money. They don't need uh, much more than awareness and, of course, people buying their products. But that's not sustainable. That's not change-based. So that's the argument. And, and, and the secondary part of the argument then is what is. And then it brings us back to a more holistic, comprehensive approach. Uh, we cannot do our job properly if we don't put it in a context. We don't cannot do it if we don't have an understanding of, of the wickedness, the complexity, the resilience of uh, certain phenomena. And uh, I've identified some of those uh, which you cannot change overnight. Uh, they take some time and they also uh, uh, need uh, special efforts and capacities. Now, in f to finalize my argument, and then I hand over to uh, Pacini, um, one genuine uh, attempt to bring all of this from a UN perspective uh, to the table were the Millennium Development Goals started in 2000. They will be evaluated or they are about to, to be evaluated by 2015. That's a few months from now. But they have already decided that they will continue with a new concept that's the Sustainable Development Goals. And in itself that's a good thing. Uh, we need uh, like in uh, the marketing business or in the advertising business, we need branding. We need uh, some creation of, of some goals, some, some objectives. And if these are objectives, fine. But of course, then if you look at it in a more content-based uh, fashion, you need to define properly what you want and also see whether that's feasible and, and, and sustainable. And those were critiques already uh, referred to uh, about the Millennium Development Goals at the, at the very start of those goals. They were engineering concepts. They were concepts thought out by uh, politicians, etc. I'm not saying that they have uh, been taken out of the, uh, the, uh, the, the text now. Uh, it's still very much a drafted and, and compromised uh, kind of uh, perspective, but at least we have made a little bit of progress. Uh, and... Uh, for those of you interested, uh, you can Google those things and uh, find out more about this. One uh, advantage, one further development of the discussion is that sustainable development is no longer associated with economic development or even environmental ecological development. It is also associated with cultural development. Although 
uh, UNESCO just last week in an open uh, uh, statement has said that there is too little cultural development in the discussion on sustainable development goals uh, in the current discussion. And, and I fully agree with that uh, as part of my own uh, work uh, uh, I've been doing. But they, they also start defining what they mean by these concepts. It's no longer cultural for the sake of whatever, and you fill out what you think uh, is cultural about it. Is it uh, the, uh, the indigenous uh, culture, or is it uh, uh, the culture of the, the youngsters in, uh, in the suburbs of... Uh, Melbourne, uh, there is some room for uh, discussion, but there is also a room for definition. That uh, circle here, which is referred to as a circle or the wheel of sustainability, is now being used to assess certain contexts, certain uh, cities, certain uh, places. And if I'm not mistaken, this is the one for Melbourne. What you see is that ecology is still uh, very poorly defined and very poorly implemented in, in this city. Uh, economically speaking, politically speaking, and even culturally speaking, we are doing, or you are doing not so badly, if you believe that this is representative. But uh, at the level of ecology, there is still some room for improvement. Okay, so having said all of that, I hope you uh, are still uh, with me or going to be with uh, uh, Dr. Malikau, because she is now going to uh, exemplify or illustrate this a bit further for the concept of Thailand, or the case of Thailand, sustainable social change from a Buddhist perspective. Please. Could I ask you a question? Uh, in the case of structural and social change, have you looked at China where you have lots of people flooding into the cities from the countryside and so on, and, and how this actually impacts on the environment and the common issues. Yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not an expert on China, but um, since I uh, joined the uh, university in the neighborhood there, uh, I'm following it. Yes, and there is indeed a lot of uh, research done these days, and also some cause for concern uh, as a result. Uh, but that, that needs another kind of discussion, I'm afraid. We can have that later. Please. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good afternoon. Um, my topic today is uh, sustainable social change from a Buddhist perspective. Uh, a Buddhist perspective in this case means uh, Thai uh, Buddhist uh, or Theravada Buddhism uh, being practiced uh, in Thailand. And uh, why it's called Theravada, it uh, means uh, teachings from the elders, meaning that we are practicing the, Buddha, the Lord Buddha's teachings like uh, as if it was 2,500 years ago, so we can call ourselves Orthodox uh, Buddhists. And the reason why uh, I chose this topic because uh, uh, Thai Buddhism uh, emphasizes human development. So in my view, for all of Jan has said, uh, human development should come first. And uh, well, I'm a big fan of Michael Jackson's uh, Man in the Mirror. He says, look at the man or the woman in the mirror and make that change. So we are going to talk about self-development in a Thai Buddhist perspective. 
There are three root causes of unsustainable development, according to a Buddhist perspective. Those are aversion. It's in your own self, your own mind. Don't like this, we don't like that. Lopa, desire or greed. And the last, ditty or views and beliefs, ideologies, religious beliefs and social values. In some, it is your own worldview that you look at the world through that kind of filter, your own worldview. So there are three worldviews that have control over modern civilizations. The perception that mankind is separable from nature and must control, conquer, or manipulate nature. That is an underlying assumption of the modernization paradigm that you emphasize, uh, emphasize the uh, development, infrastructure, and so on and so forth. The other one is the perception that fellow human beings are not fellow human beings. That's underlying assumption of slavery in the past and colonization in the 19th, 20th century, neo-colonization, and the perception that happiness can only be found through an abundance of material possessions. That's an underlying assumption of modernization, capitalism, consumerism. Now, how to attain a sustainable development uh, within your own self or in a Thai Buddhist perspective? We have to think about economy. In a Buddhist perspective, we emphasize sufficient economy, meaning that the economy that minimizes the exploitation of others. In, in, uh, is there more elaboration of uh, sufficient economy we can uh, discuss later in a question and answer if you are interested. Ecology. So you must have that concern about your environment and how to live within your uh, natural resources and how to use it uh, appropriately for your upcoming generations. And the last one uh, is evolvability is a new term uh, defined by Payuto, uh, who is a renowned uh, Buddhist monk in Thailand. He defines it as the ability of a human to develop oneself, to live in harmony with nature, not to conquer nature nor destroy it. So all of these three E's contradict the worldviews of the uh, that I just talked before, there's all kind of perception that held control of the uh, modern civilization. So how to uh, be a developed person or an educated person in Buddhist, uh, Buddhist perspective, you don't have to hold a PhD or a university degree. So you must uh, be free from what we call in Bali, Masharia, or covetousness, avarice, or grasping of the falling, meaning that you don't have no, there's no fixed ideas. Locality and country, regionalism, nationalism, 
group of family, nepotism, including ethnic and religious groups, ethnocentrism or religious uh, fundamentalism, material wealth, greed, class or caste, caste, including social standing, skin color, and so on, racism. Knowledge and learning, including intellectual achievements and attainments. No mon monopolizing of knowledge. We should challenge. Now I would like to talk about the top development agenda in Buddhist perspective that includes uh, behavior, behavior change, attitude change, and mental change. The first one, we talk about right occupation, meaning that one should not exploit other human beings or the environment. Moral conduct to maintain self-contentment so that you not, don't ex exploit others, and the right wisdom or knowledge. To accept differences among mankind, understand that there are different paths to development with the aim to conserve the environment. Okay, so a communicator for sustainable development must develop his or her own self to be a selfless person, according to the Thai Buddhist perspective. Ego is very important. You have to reduce your ego. There are four sublime states of mind that you should cultivate. First one is loving kindness, or metta in Bali. Why do I use Bali? Because it's the language that Lord Buddha taught 2,500 years ago. Bali is a sister uh, language of Sanskrit, that uh, our etymology uh, in, in, in Thai language. Loving kindness, that coins with Christianity, love your neighbors. Not only your neighbors, across the borders, across the board, also animals, other living creatures. Compassion, reaching others for happiness. Ready to sympathize or empathize others. That's very important in communication. You have to have mudita or sympathize, sympathy or empathy for others. And you stay undeterred of lust and craving, upeka. This has to be cultivated maybe in school, in family. But you have to have a well good balance of these four elements. If you have more metta and karuna for your own people, then you end up like Thailand in corruption, because you love your own people so much, you have compassion for your own people, and that's, uh, that's created an issue. So you have to have a well balance of these four elements. And in order to communicate well for sustainable social change, you must uh, also understand that there are differences in cultures and Intercultural communication is also important. You should know about the difference between cultural, individual, and dialectics. That means that 
what's in the culture and what's uh, 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 an individual is so different from that culture that the uh, person represents. And you must know the context in which you are communicating with that person and understand that there are differences and similarities in one's own culture and also among other cultures. And you have to understand that culture is not a static one. It's not only artifacts. You have to think about the interaction, communication, by using those symbols, those artifacts. And you must understand history in order to live in the present and look forward to the future or plan for the future. And understand that there are also the privileged citizens and the disadvantaged people in your community or in your culture. So we have to deal with them. But not only uh, people from different cultures, there are also subcultures, subgroups that you need to communicate in order to achieve uh, sustainable uh, social change. And uh, all of this is uh, applied in my research on uh, HIV AIDS prevention campaigns in a Buddhist perspective. And uh, I also have other research interests in uh, 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 communication for sustainable uh, development and mediatization and uh, culture, especially religious culture. So thank you for listening. Thanks for having me. Could I ask you a question about this uh, meta and loving kindness? Does that apply to, you know, not littering? Because one of the problems about ecology and environment is human littering emotions and, and the lakes and the rivers and all that leading to massive kind of garbage in the ocean. So does meta cover that? Loving kindness. Uh, okay. Yeah, it is if you are going to apply it in a, in a, in a more wider uh, environment, yes. Meta means you you uh, love not only your own uh, people, your others, and you know, the environment. So it's part, you are part of the nature. So see, you are not inseparable from your own environment. Thank you. Okay, I think uh, you're all ready to raise some questions now. Uh, so let me just briefly skim over what uh, is left. Um, again, uh, if you are really interested, you can uh, get the PowerPoint uh, of this chapter uh, to Marian's uh, email uh, address. Uh, so we, we are not going to elaborate furthermore. I'm just going to highlight uh, what I think is important for future discussions, and it may give you some food for thought while you're doing your own research or while you are setting up your own uh, paradigms or uh, uh, trajectories for uh, teaching, etc. I think it's important to emphasize that interdisciplinarity is the way forward, not so much the foolish uh, disciplinary obsessions, which were the trend and, and, and recommended ways to go in a couple of years ago. Uh, I'm not saying that uh, you cannot go for the deep end studies. Uh, you need to do that in a contextual way, and you need to be aware that there are other perspectives which can add some understanding, some knowledge, some uh, expertise to what you are doing yourself. And, that's uh, what uh, interdisciplinarity should be about. 
Um, oh, sorry. The the power of culture and homogeneity and diversity. Again, uh, culture is important. The power of uh, assessing uh, culture is important, but you can do it in a variety of ways. It's not only the the black and white kind of uh, perspectives which uh, tend to be or were very much explicit in the early days of cultural studies and uh, popular versus uh, elite cultural uh, analysis, etc. So we need to move away from these uh, more traditional forms of uh, assessing uh, culture and uh, hopefully become more uh, lucid in the way we assess those and explain those to people as well uh, because uh, teaching is partly explaining what should be uh, common good. New form of modernization that uh, is again a body of uh, this language and body of knowledge which uh, has been well documented. Apadurai, uh, to name one of them, uh, uh, has made a major contribution in that regard uh, by, the, by the simple argument that modernization is not westernization, which was the initial uh, argument uh, in the cultural imperialism uh, debate. Uh, uh, there is a genuine uh, craving of people, of communities, of individuals for newness, for uh, something uh, uh, outside of their immediate environment. And if you want to call that modernization with some debate and, and proper definition, so be it. But that, that not always means westernization. Sometimes westernization can play a role. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it becomes a more um, a mix or a, or a hybrid of what uh, the original idea was about, etc. It's important to emphasize this. Sustainability of social change processes, I've already highlighted or I uh, referred to those. Uh, 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 while passing uh, nation states and national cultures there is a body of uh, 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 literature which still makes the claim that notwithstanding all the discussions about globalization and localization and different ways of analyzing all of that in the end it's the nation state it's the uh, national culture which is still the dominant culture I think we need to take that into consideration, yes, also in political terms. Uh, Europe is referring to itself as European Union, but I'm not going to say in public that I'm a European. I'm still a Belgian, and if I'm in Belgium, I'm not a Belgian, but I'm a Fleming, because I have other ways of identifying myself. So it's important to uh, have that kind of flexibility to define, not also realizing that there may be other commonalities which you need to identify for research or for a, a proper discussion on these things. The place of civil society in the role of new social movements, I think that that's uh, given these days. Uh, we should not uh, continue taking uh, uh, Abbott's uh, word as the gospel. Uh, he is uh, just one player in a uh, uh, coalition of uh, conservative forces and there are uh, many others uh, available and uh, contributing to this, at least in the democratic environment uh, Australia uh, tends to live. If I take the loop back to Hong Kong and China, then that's another uh, discussion mm -hmm. worth having, but uh, not now. Linking the global and the local, um, again, that's easier said than done, but I like the, the concept which was 
originally defined and, and developed by John Thompson, who is less known in the communication uh, literature, but uh, he's a political philosopher. Uh, he used the terms, uh, things are globally diffused these days, but they are still locally appropriated or locally consumed, uh, integrated. And by using terms like appropriation and better word than consumption, you already uh, get the point that it is doing something to yourself and to your community in the process of appropriation. And that may end up as a westernized product, but it may often end up in a hybrid, uh, um, a mixed form. And then it becomes uh, an issue what that uh, mix, what that uh, hybrid means for the community or the people affected by it. And the, this then leads to the next uh, page, which once again uh, rephrases what I think I have already been emphasizing a number of times. What is the future of our research agenda? I think uh, we should stay uh, fully in control of our normative values, of what we aim for. So if the aim is to contribute to social change, we should say it and then start uh, working along those lines. That means that we need a new concept of humanism. It's no longer humanism is Western, is civilization, is uh, enlightenment. There are other forms of humanism available in any kind of uh, cultural, uh, uh, religious, or uh, whatever uh, historical phase. That also brings me to the cosmopolitan um, challenge, uh, which has again been debated uh, in philosophy environments. Uh, what does it mean to be a citizen of the world? What does it mean to be a cosmopolitan? What does it mean to be a self in this kind of uh, ongoing process of change, of globalization? And what is the role or what can be the contribution from a communication perspective to analyze and, and research this properly? Content or development agendas, uh, that's probably uh, also uh, an, uh, an open door by now. Uh, it's not only about processes, it's not only about selling products, it's about what it means for us as human beings and the uh, elements uh, of uh, what is the rights concept in this, what is the human rights concept in this, what are the implications of a human rights perspective on uh, uh, certain things like uh, immigration and migration, etc., etc. And that it all implies that we need to have more uh, methodologies and techniques which go beyond the traditional uh, quantitative uh, methodologies that comes as a logical outcome of my plea for uh, more participatory communication research, uh, which includes ethnography, uh, participatory action research, uh, and the lot. Uh, if you uh, are interested in reading and learning more about that, uh, these are two of the books already mentioned uh, earlier, which are uh, on the market. Uh, uh, this is the book uh, uh, authored by uh, Pacini. And the last one, uh, for those uh, reading uh, Chinese, uh, they can uh, book this now for uh, almost uh, a giveaway price of five US or Australian dollars. Uh, it's published by the Wuhan University Press, and it uh, is a a translation of different articles which are also available in English, co-authored by myself or by uh, Pacini.
Okay, thank you for your interest and uh, time for questions. <laughs>